time for Type 40 or Doctor Who podcast from the Spacebook for the Fandom Podcast Network with me, Dan Hadley, Birmingham's King of the Geeks and your designated driver. Whether you're new to the show and our time stream or whether you've been with us before, you'll be happy to learn we're the same irreverent, non-gatekeeping, eclectic show for everybody. That's whatever decade or century you started watching, reading or listening along to the adventures of our hero, Doctor Who. We chat about it all on this show. All views are encouraged, and there'll even be a few laughs along the way. Maybe, fingers crossed. So come and step into our TARDIS and share this journey together here with us on Type 40. And once again, I've got a couple of my very favourite companions here with me too. So without further ado, let's let's bring them on. Enter. Not the uh, not the last of the Time Lords. He's the first of the Hoonatics. Simon Horton, <laughs> welcome back to Type 40. Uh, thank you very much, Danny. Yeah, I don't quite... Yes, I suppose I am. I don't, yeah. Coming with confidence <laughs> like the ongoing storm, the oncoming storm. Oh, <laughs> no, that's the wrong Doctor, isn't it? <laughs> it oh, I'm getting, getting my Doctors mixed isn't up. That, isn't that the 10th Doctor, the ongoing storm, oncoming storm? It, I don't know. I think I it is, yeah. It's definitely not the 10th we're talking about this time. We're, we're no. talking. We're going one back. This is the next <laughs> in our... It's going well, isn't it? This is the next in our trilogy of celebrations of the Christopher Eccleston Doctor, the ninth Doctor. A few episodes ago, myself and Starry Eyed Girl, Sarah Graham, we were here talking about our first impressions, our lasting impressions, and our love of this particular corner to the whole Doctor Who legend. That, uh, that very particular era that lasted just 13 episodes, Simon. But we felt that to revisit this time, we needed to bring in somebody whose views we haven't heard yet on it. So, yeah, thanks for joining us this time. Can't wait to see You're what welcome. you've got to say. But, you yeah, might well, keep me out before we get to the end. But there we go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Chris, brace yourself. It's going to be the trip of a lifetime. <laughs> but before we get there, what I wanted to talk to you about, too, was, uh, yeah, 2004, when Doctor Who was back in production after such a long, long break. Obviously, it was a very heady time for everybody, for probably for nobody more than it was for Russell T. Davies himself, because Russell had been desperate, I think, with a small D. He'd got other things going on, bless him. But he was desperate to make Doctor Who and had been for four or five years. But so were other people. So what I've got here, these are some other pitches that the BBC took from industry pros, people who also wanted to bring Doctor Who back out of the wilderness. So this is this is the first one. This is from Dan Freeman. Have you heard of Dan Freeman? Um, yeah, I remember the name Dan Freeman. Wasn't he, was he involved in some of the online computer animated he was. Doctor Who stories or something like that? Was he Scream of the Shalker or, or what was the one that Colin That's Baker was in? Yeah, he was involved in, well, first of all, the very first, I think it's the very first webcast ever made or something. It was the 2001 series, Death Comes to Time. Death Comes Sylvester to Time. That's McCoy. the Colin Baker one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, oh, yeah, Sylvester that, McCoy, is it? Yeah, that big epic with Sylvester McCoy and Stephen Fry and and uh, various others. Uh, John Sessions is in that. Lots of people. Sophie Aldred, of course. It's quite a big epic thing. And so he I was behind that. But yeah, I think I what, you're, what you're confusing it with is real time that he did with Colin Baker, which was a sort of a right. big finish. That was a big finish drama that they put to animation or vice versa. I'm not sure which version came came first. That's the one. I'm, I, I, I can certainly remember both of them. Yeah, but, but certainly I remember the, um, what did you say it was called, the Colin Baker one? The Colin Baker thing was called Real Time. Real Time. I knew they'd got time in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. See, yeah. Danny was confusing us from the start. But yeah, he pitched He pitched to do Doctor Who too. His take on it was uh, was going to be a fantasy retelling, 
here according to my source, which picked up where Death Comes to Time itself left off. And uh, the idea was this version was going to reject completely the canonicity of the TV movie. So Paul, sorry, sorry mate. <laughs> so Paul's eighth Doctor was gone, replaced altogether by this, this Time Lord that Dan had created in Death Comes to Time called the Minister of Chance. And the idea was that the Minister was going to inherit the role of the Doctor going forward in this higher fantasy reimagining of of Doctor Who and uh, the Time Lords were going to remain as a big presence but were going to be much more godlike. So uh, have you ever heard Death Comes to Time or watched it and how does that sound to you? I, I definitely remember it. I definitely remember watching Death Comes to Time and uh, and the Colin Baker one. So I watched all of them because let's be honest in those days that was that was all we thought Doctor we Who was ever going to be. And, and all I can say is I, I can't remember a thing about any of them, to be yes. honest, except I seem to remember Colin <laughs> Baker's outfit might have been blue. In, uh, in it was. In, I can't remember anything else really about any of them, other than I'm really sorry, but other than just a sense of disappointment from the point of view of, gosh, is this it? This is the best doctor we're going to get. Is, is these is these basically what what were amounted to a little more than sort of static images put to in effect, a, a kind of a big finish style audio. It wasn't really what we'd waited all those years for. No. So although on the one hand, it was nice to sort of see yeah. Doctor Who back and being done by the BBC. You, yeah, let's be honest, it wasn't quite what any of us wanted, was it? As somebody that, uh, that I know very well is always saying, context is everything. And in context to the general, the general sort of uh, landscape, of the media at the time and fantasy TV, fantasy properties in Doctor Who, you know, it was really ambitious and, and epic. And obviously it's great yeah. that people were doing things like that. But I do, I do know what you mean. Substituting this new character for the Doctor, sort of inheriting the mantle, it's very, very bold. That would have been the hardest sell of all, I think, because there'd have been that disconnect. But hey, it's, it's a very, very bold idea. I don't know what their reaction would have been. I think it may have been too complex for executives to kind of be able to follow, let alone well, the say, it, it sounds very fanny, doesn't it? Let's be honest. It is kind of fan. It sounds fan fiction that does, and and I suppose in many ways that's what those Death Comes to Time and Scream the Shalker and that they were fan fictions in effect, simply because they were a very niche market. They were never going to appeal to to the wider market, really. And so, in that respect, maybe it would have worked. But then, in the other respect, it, it's it's no longer Doctor Who. Surely, if you're replacing the main character, it's not Doctor Who That's anyway. Kind it's a different of my show. Thoughts, so, yeah. so, what is the point? It's bold, but I don't. I just don't think it was big enough, and I don't think it was what would have grabbed the British public. So, I'm not entirely surprised. We've got a couple more coming up, but uh, now this is the time I think to bring in our second companion, fresh from her triumphant success as a fifth Doctor on the Script Doctor's YouTube channel quite recently. Yes, that was that was online. There'll be a link to that in the show notes, as always. But she's back here. Sans Cricket Jumper, starry-eyed girl Sarah Graham. Hello, Sarah. You okay? Hello, Dan. Thank you for having me. I am very well, thank you. Yeah, so are the, uh, are the notices in for your performance? Have they been kind? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, sadly, I was overshadowed by another member of the cast, Bean oh. Perry. I didn't, they... I didn't have the bikini on, so... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, was somebody else on the cast drawing focus, I think they say, in the acting world? Yes. Yeah. 
terrible. Uh, well, we'll check that out at a later date. If you haven't seen the script, Doctors, we'll make sure you've got all the links to go and see that. But what did you think of that first pitch we were just talking about a moment ago from a 2004 Doctor Who that didn't happen but could have? Well, I'm really into my fantasy, so that yeah. that is something that would draw me in. But obviously not having much to do with Doctor at that point, you know, I wouldn't have had that disconnect with it because I wouldn't have had everything that had come before. But it, it really makes me think of the, the Philip Pullman book, his Dark Materials trilogy, not yeah. what they did on, they've been doing recently with BBC and HBO, that kind of like ministers and magic and that kind of, you know, that higher intellectual kind of thing. So I think there probably was a market for it even back then. But yeah, it it really doesn't sound like Doctor Who. No. I think it would have mythologised the character of the Doctor as this sort of, this presence, this absence, sorry, that would be akin to the to the girl's father in those Pullman mm-hmm. books. Yeah. You know, and we do catch up with him a little bit later on. So I do see what Dan was going, going for with that. If that wasn't to your taste, see what you think of this one. This is a second pitch from Matthew Graham. Now, you will know, know his name. He did get to work on Doctor Who a little later on. He wrote... Uh, the 2006 classic, Fear Her, and then afterwards, the the Rebel Flesh and the Almost People for the Matt Smith era. But yeah, back before Doctor Who came back, he pitched for its return too. And although we don't know a great deal about what uh, what Matthew had had planned, he describes it as a gothic-style pitch. Uh, Now, bear in mind, we don't get much of that in... Fear her, do we? I suppose. Having said that, I suppose there's a lot of this darkness sort of in the center, in the center of that. But the rebel flesh and the almost people, they were quite gothic, weren't they? The, yes. The villains, yes. the yep. setting, and there, there was all. It had that feel of the, the story of the golem. Yeah, Is I mean, it, I'd certainly be interested. My ears prick up immediately when you when you say gothic, because obviously there's a lover of um, the Philip Hinchcliffe era above all other eras. That he's the most gothic Doctor Who's ever been. Yes. Um and I'd love I'd love still now to see a return to that gothic horror. I don't think it'll ever happen. Um, I mean, Doctor Who at this moment in time is furthest away from gothic horror that it's probably ever been yeah. um, and and so and so maybe that's why it doesn't quite resonate with me so so yeah i love the idea of, of more gothic um but on the strength of his three doctor who scripts my heart sinks because fear her is, is <laughs> definitely one of the worst and i'm and, I, and, and to be honest so are his two matt smith scripts for me I, I really really didn't respond well to those at all I, i'm i'm not desperately disappointed that he didn't quite make make the cut matthew if you're out there i i do love fear her <laughs> not everybody dislikes this story I promise. but uh, yeah he he did end up of course bringing us the wonderful life on mars and its sequel show ashes to ashes so i don't think he was that upset for too long he named his central character after after rose tyler and sam tyler so yeah i think everybody won all things considered there there is a third pitch as well everybody and this came from uh, a trinity a trinity of doctor who figures this came from the the minds of clayton hickman at the time was the editor of Doctor Who magazine. Clayton Hickman with Gareth Roberts and Mark Gatiss. They were they were all working together on a continuation, but expressly not a reboot of the continuity. So uh, 
unlike the uh, the version that Russell T Davies gave us, where uh, the companion's role is heavily emphasised as the as the audience's sort of uh, en- entry identification point, this was much more about the Doctor himself. And the idea was that it would uh, it would introduce the Doctor as a mysterious figure who was living in a village, working in an antique store. So it wouldn't be too far away from the original introduction in the junkyard. And then gradually the universe would, would sort of open up from that, really, as the Doctor being this smaller, quite inconspicuous man, living a reasonably normal life, and then the universe would, would open up. Of course, Gatiss and Roberts both went on to, to write for Doctor Who itself, whilst Clayton Hickman, he collaborated with Gareth Roberts on an episode of the Sarah Jane Adventures. And uh, this ended up being an, another treatment, another idea that was rejected. But Mark Gatiss himself at the time, he was still, I think, flavour of the month. There would have been three seasons into the League of Gentlemen at that yeah. point. It was a huge show, probably one of the biggest comedy shows, certainly in Britain. His star was very much rising because obviously he wrote the, uh, the Unquiet Dead, didn't he, for series one in the end. So you can see why they would entertain a pitch from somebody like Mark Gatiss, can't you, Sarah? Yeah, and I, it's, it's funny because as soon as they said um, village and an antique shop, I was, I was thinking a local shop for local. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't think there'd be any brown fish in this one, or would yeah. there? <laughs> it, it does make you wonder. What it makes me think of, Simon, is Doctor Who Night back in 1999, where Mark Gatiss himself played played the Doctor in that little five-minute uh, skit, which yes. was a spoof of Doctor Who, but he, but he did it opposite David Williams. And yes. how he played it. I remember seeing a, a, an article from Mark Gatiss, because he chose his outfit for that scene where he created his doctor and he based it around the the writer Lewis Carroll and I think that is some indicator maybe of where Gatiss's Doctor Who may have gone I know there would have been input particularly from Gareth Roberts a very very creative man but I think Mm -hmm. Mark Gatiss would have been the creative lead on that and I think that if you look at if you look at Lewis Carroll works you know Alice in Wonderland in particular obviously where you've got inanimate objects and, and cuddly animals sort of um, developing sort of demonic faces and things. I, th- I think that's that's very much Mark Gatiss's M.O. in all that other work. And I yeah. totally see that that could have been where he would take Doctor Who. I think he'd take it down down the rabbit hole or down down the, the March Hares tunnel or whatever else. I think we'd have ended up with a lot of classic children's story fantasy ideas near the water babies and all that kind of yeah. thing too. Yeah. And, and I can see it being very quirky and off the wall. Um, you know, his stuff is quite out there. Gareth, I'm not an enormous fan of um, of, of uh, Mark Gatiss. I have to be honest, I don't like him particularly as an actor. His best Doctor Who script by far was uh, The Unquiet Dead. Gareth Roberts uh, is a very interesting name to have in there. I can't quite see where Clayton Hickman fits into all this. Um, he's one of those kind of ubiquitous people that seems yeah. to ha- have his finger in just about every Doctor Who pie going and somehow making cushions and, and shower curtains. <laughs> and if you don't believe me, go and have a look. There's Clayton Hickman's yeah. collection of, uh, yeah. of Doctor Who uh, designer goods are out there to find on Redbubble. Um, so I'm just not quite certain where he fits into it. I I, I think that generally as a principle as the, the three of us we all know that creative people do tend to wear several hats which which we sort of rotate and I think Clayton's probably probably like that maybe whatever they concocted in the room whichever idea it was they were thrashing out together he must have brought something integral 
to that. I'd love to hear them talk about it. I mean, maybe they've given an interview at some point. I know they would have all have been part of that roundtable feature in Doctor Who magazine back in 2000, about nine, no, when was it? About 1990? Yeah, I would say it was around about 2000, something mm. like that, when, yeah, there were a lot of them sort of pitched in their ideas as to what they do to bring it back. I mean, I have to be honest, the, the, the idea that you, you just saying it there of, of he's running, what is it, a second-hand, uh, an antique shop or something in a little village, that immediately piques my curiosity. I like yeah. that idea. That that seems a really good way in to a new to a relaunch of Doctor Who. That 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 he's he's now, and of course that is in many ways what they do with Rose. They kind of hit the ground running in in a, where he is now in a new arena, as it were. And I like the idea of yeah, that, that I can absolutely see the Doctor so just running a second-hand yeah. bookshop in Royston Vasey, can't you? And I, I've <laughs> yeah. just been thinking to myself, who on earth would Mark Gatiss have cast? And then I realised, I bet that he had Simon Callow in mind for that, Sarah, who played oh, Char- wow, Charles Dickens in The Unquiet Dead. I think he'd be perfect. Yes. I could just see him as this fussy little man in an antique shop with his spectacles on, on the bridge of his nose. What do you think? Yeah, I can see that dust in his collection. Yeah. yeah. Oh. And wouldn't he have been amazing? That would have been fantastic. Mm. Or, um, or or Derek Jacobi, for example. Another you know, one. Derek yeah. Jacobi running a second-hand bookstop. That's, it's great. I really like that idea. That, character that, that character idea. actors with that lightness of touch and that, that glint in their eye, Hartnell-esque, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Ah, what could have been? What could have been? We're going to have to go back to reality. There's no hardship in that, I don't think, Beans, as we're talking about something that was one of Doctor Who's biggest triumphs, the most uh, most important comeback in TV history, I would say. But before we get to that, I'm going to remind you that if you want to do some real-time travelling of your own, each and every edition of our show, past, present and future, is out there on the device of your choice if you know where to look. Dozens of conversations, interviews and reviews stretching back over three years of the podcast. There's more about that a little bit later on, as well as a visit to the Matrix of All Knowledge. That's the Fandom Podcast Network to us, where you'll be hearing about some of the other wonderful genre-related podcasts on their master feed with us. And we're back. Yeah, listening to those pitches, as interesting as they were, and as much as I respect those creatives, I'm really pleased they went with Russell's concept. I think it was the closest, strange enough, yeah, the closest to classic Doctor Who. And uh, although the Time Lords of Gallifrey were gone, I think Russell, what Russell T. Davies brought to it was, strangely, the blankest of canvases, all things considered. A take on the show that could probably go anywhere and with the right tone for the age and uh, pulling off that which I think a lot of Doctor Who pundits and, and key figures and writers, I think he pulled off something which a lot of people thought was impossible in being that straight continuation of 26 years of, of legacy storytelling that, that didn't drive away the casual audience. But yeah, a few weeks ago, Sarah, we got together and pretty much had a big geek out about our love, didn't we, for Chris Eccleston. And with the fact that his return to the role in the audios from Big Finish was getting closer and closer, all this new material with Chris playing the Doctor again. And uh, yeah, as if by magic, though, just as we recorded that last episode, Chris Eccleston, who for the last 15 years has said very, very little about Doctor Who, he started talking and talking and talking. He's everywhere. Can't <laughs> shut him up now. Absolutely everywhere. And not just about these new audios, but generally too. 
about about storytelling, about how he views the show and mythology and all this sort of thing. And what I hadn't realised, Simon, is that when Sarah and I were talking about that, you'd not long come off the back, have you, at a complete rewatch of the Christopher Eccleston TV era, those 13 episodes. Yeah, absolutely. The first time since transmission. I haven't seen a wow. single episode of New Doctor Who, not a single episode since its original transmission. Um, and I uh, finally got round to getting the Blu-rays of of, um, uh, of all of the, uh, up to the end of um, the specials, the, the Matt Smith specials. Oh. So I decided to start back at the beginning, obviously, and start with Rose. And, and that's mm-hmm. what I did. So the end of last year, I timed it perfectly to be able to watch them through the autumn, which to me is still the right time to be watching Doctor Who, not in the yes, spring. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. And, and they worked brilliantly to me in the autumn. Things like Father's Day, Dalek, um, uh, all, all those stories feel have an autumnal feel to them. Yeah. And so I, and I timed it perfectly then to be able to watch, uh, a, 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 of course, Christmas Invasion at Christmas. Mm-hmm. So it worked perfectly. And so, yeah, I just steadily, methodically worked through. I even watched uh, even watched Doctor Who Confidential after them as yeah. well for old times' sake to, to really <laughs> take me back. We watched them on a Saturday yeah. night as, you know, as we would, as is right and proper. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was great to do. I really enjoyed just revisiting those and it was it was amazing actually how much it didn't feel like what was it fifteen years since I had first seen them, which is remarkable when you think about it fifteen years yeah. ago um so with you know with that we're talking the difference between um an unearthly child and uh what is it, Pyramids of Mars? No, it's even later than Pyramids Ouch. of Mars. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, no, it's, it's Image of the Fendal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Fendal, the Sunmakers. We're talking that, that length of time between mm. them, which is remarkable when you think about it. But they were a lot fresher in my memory than I remembered. So as, mm. I, as they were unfolding, I just remembered more of them. So they'd obviously, yeah. to give them credit, they'd obviously left more of an impact in my brain mm. than I necessarily gave them credit for so this in the spirit of nostalgia what i was curious about because we weren't actually in contact around this time you and i so i I was wondering where were you when you heard that doctor who this beloved show from your childhood that had obsessed you for all that time where were you and how did you hear that it was actually coming back uh i can remember i was at home and I, i i heard it on the news i heard it on bbc news and, and, and at that time, the, when, when the scre- Scream of the Schalke was, was announced, however months prior to that it was, I remember at that time, that was on the BBC Radio News as well, which was remarkable when you think about it. it wow. was, all it was was an audio, um, yeah. it was an audio story. And what was odd about the, the, the announcement of Scream of the Schalke was that at the time the BBC said, this is an official continuation of Doctor Who and Richard E. Grant is the ninth doctor and that uh, and that's official and it's all it's all great and it's correct so when i then very very quickly afterwards heard the announcement about the russell t davis series there was a degree of confusion yeah. as in hold on i thought scream of the shall richard e grant uh, is this part of that so and I think also because we genuinely were not expecting to get this announcement that it was coming back on television, I remember just stopping for a second and pausing and thinking, did I hear that right? Is yeah, that- for sure. You sure you no, got that right, BBC? <laughs> yeah. 
and because, as I say, there was this confusion over Scream as a Schalke, and anybody that was there at the time would remember this. It really was very odd, and boy, did it take the, 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 the wind out of the sails of Scream of the Schalke, which had been touted as, as I say, the official Ninth Doctor. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, nobody's interested in Scream of the Schalke. So it was just a really odd time, an exciting time, obviously, is, is this for definite? Is this real? It was almost like it was an April Fool's joke. It was, it was, was Richard E. Grant ever approached to no. reprise it then? I don't know, and I would imagine the simple answer is no. I doubt very much if he was. No. Um, simply because I presume Russell had his absolute ideas of who he wanted the Doctor to be. No, um, he, he wasn't approached. Russell T. Davies is not a fan of Richard E. Grant's performance in that. That's documented. He's spoken about that in an interview, specifically the performance. So I'll try, I'll try and get a link to that and, and pop that in the show notes as well, or get some sort of citation for that. But yeah, that, that was an interview somewhere along the line. Yeah, he, he didn't think he didn't think that Richard E. Grant had, had delivered at all on that. But of course, that was written by, by Paul Cornell. Paul Cornell did go on to write for Series One. Where, once we got past that, where we got the, the klaxon going off and Doctor Who is back. We had several months to get used to the idea and for the speculation machine to run and run and run about who and when and how and how much of it. It was around five months later that we heard the name Christopher Eccleston. Did that surprise you? Had you seen Chris in anything else? And, and what were your first thoughts of that? I don't know whether it surprised me. Uh, I, can, I can remember my mom who... who, who uh, reads the Daily Express every day. I remember she phoned me up the one day and said, have you seen who they've got as Doctor Who? And so she was actually <laughs> the one who told me this was, this was how I got this particular bit of news. Yeah. And I was like, no, who is it? Christopher Eccleston. Like, and I have to be honest, I, I didn't know the name Christopher Eccleston. Couldn't place it. I've never heard of him. He's going to be known because it's the Doctor. That's, that's You can't have a Doctor that you know. You that I haven't heard of, yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely, absolutely. You need somebody well known as the Doctor. That's fine. But of course, as soon as I, I heard um, that he'd been in 28 Days Later and Shallow Grave. Yeah, of course, I'd seen those. And so suddenly I was aware of him. And I I think, to be honest, my first reaction was absolutely. I'd got no problem at all. I didn't, it wasn't a knee-jerk reaction as, oh my goodness, no, he's wrong for the part. No, as I say, I'd seen 28 Days Later and Shallow Grave. He's a cracking actor. Um, I could see him doing it. I, I understood why... They were going why they were trying to 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 go against conventional casting and and and, and go in an entirely new direction. So I can't honestly say that I was hugely excited. I didn't think, "Wow, Christopher Eccleston!" No, I, I was I was completely indifferent, and I was fully prepared to to to, to give it a chance. I, I was excited. We were all excited at that time. It was great to know that it was coming back. And so, to be honest, if they cast Mister Blobby, I probably would have been excited. <laughs> and it was still <laughs> Doctor Who, and it's back. And there was still that little bit of I don't know about you, speaking purely for myself. There was still that little bit of, I believe it when I see it, about it. Something's bound to go wrong. Yeah. They say a year, but it could be two. It could be three. I remember the TV movie. That took years from when they first started talking about it. Well, and also, I think to an extent there was a degree on my part and, and, and maybe on others' part as well of just trepidation anyway, not just because something might go wrong, but also because... It probably won't work. It won't be successful. It won't be popular. It'll probably end up on BBC Two because it won't be up to much. And it'll just be another little bit of a damp squib. My, my excitement was kind of tempered 
by that um, ner- what was I, it wasn't even nervousness I wasn't nervous so much as I was just yeah weary a little bit because to be honest screaming the Schalke is well rubbish for, for want of a, of a kinder word it's not good I'm sorry but it's not good um, and so oh, how excited can I get do you know what I mean there was a degree of anticipation excitement I want this to be brilliant but something I'd forgotten as well, were early reports were that it was going to be six episodes. You think, okay, well, six episodes. A lot of shows come on; they do six episodes. It sounded like it sounded like something that could have been quite finite and uh, an, an adaptation of Doctor mm-hmm. Who rather than an actual continuation. And that was a moment where Sarah, I started to feel more like Doctor Who was back as potentially an ongoing thing when they confirmed that, that it was for thirteen. You look across at shows like like New Tricks and like Silent Witness and all the other sort of longer running shows at the time between 10 and 13 episodes that did usually signify that greater commitment to be around that bit longer to grow to grow an audience. Does that do you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, it wasn't just the a flash in the pan kind of thing, you know, an experiment. Uh, I mean, I, I remember obviously at the time they didn't realize what you know how big a hit it was going to be they weren't as far as another one even planning a second series until was it at the end of series one or as i understand it the production of series one was absolutely breakneck and they were up against it all the way they were learning on the job in virtually Mm -hmm. every respect including russell t davies you know by that time He'd been working in, in TV. He'd had a couple of really big hits. This wasn't somebody who was new to TV, but they were all finding it exhausting and a mm. baptism of fire and the visual effects side to it. In particular, I think most of them had never worked with with visual effects before mm. and the, the time scales, scales involved in that. I mean, the, you know, several of the, of the cast and crew were exhausted, not least of all Christopher Eccleston himself. Well, well the other thing that, that as well, that to put it in context, that... that, that for anybody that wasn't quite there whilst all this was going on with the announcement beforehand, you only came on board having watched Rose and you missed this kind of anticipatory part of it, was that for a long time we were all nervous as Doc 2 fans, would they keep the TARDIS? Would they keep the theme music? Would the Daleks be back? None of these were givens. We we take it for granted now, but at the time that it was announced, there was a definite feeling of, what will it be like? Will it be anything remotely like Doctor All Who? bets are off, that kind of thing. All bets were completely off. And I can still remember the announcement being made that, you know, almost, don't worry, the TARDIS is going to be back. The theme music will be back. The Doctor is still going to be the Doctor. And, and suddenly we then we began, I can remember just beginning to feel a little bit more... You know, okay, I can begin to feel a little more anticipation for it now because at that point it could have come back as who knows what and had nothing really to do with the original series. And I can remember Russell T. Davies at some point in the run-up to it saying it will be a continuation. It is it is a, a continuation of the original show, whereas it could have been an entirely new reboot um, that that bore that had no connection to the original mm-hmm. show at that was causing concern because we just didn't know what to expect. It, it, that was disconcerting, to be yeah. honest, disorientating. It's and, weird for me listening to this because obviously you just took it for granted that the police box is there, you know. Yeah, of course. 
and we did for many years but knowing it was mm. it had been gone for so long was coming back it, there was no givens because we were only a few years after a high profile tv movie which had continued the continuity of the tv show which had continued the iconography and was viewed rightly or wrongly i'd say definitely wrongly as having been a big failure and yeah. so why would you do something why would you repeat that failure in essence yeah. fortunately for us russell t davies had a better eye than that and you got people like mal young in the equation as well as as well as judy julie gardner and, and lorraine hegacy so i think people who were who were considered in surveying the territory and were accurate in their judgment in their grasp of what the british viewing public in particular would respond to and the the cultural footprint that had been left by the classic show and the effect too of the wilderness years and the rolling out of the vhs range and the fact that it had never gone away there was something in that all those all those indicators of interest they're, they're like light bulbs if you look at it as a runway an airport runway with lights going on to guide you all the way down if you if you were looking all the signs were there and i think that's why so many of us every single calendar year we're keeping that flame alive and think surely this year doctor who must be back surely now i mean the big the big thing for me sarah after the tv movie i got a bit disheartened for three or four years and i thought that doctor who wouldn't come back even when there were rumours around 1999 that Russell T Davies was going to be making Doctor Who, there was this project Doctor Who 2000. It was all in the newspapers that it was coming back with Russell T Davies four years before it actually did. Never, never went anywhere. Even in the wake of all that, I was really quite low about it all. Uh, no chance at all. But what convinced me, the penny that dropped for me, was when ITV commissioned a brand new continuation stroke comeback of the ATV soap opera Crossroads for weeknights. And, uh, you know, it was it came, it came back as a five nights a week soap opera and it's got Jane Asher in it and Free Regiment, she was in it too. And it was quite high, pro- high profile and people were talking about it. I know several people at work who watched it, but as soon as it was announced, I turned to somebody at the time. I immediately said... If Crossroads can come back, anything can come back. And it means that if Crossroads can come back, <laughs> Doctor Who will come back. From that moment on, from 2001, I was convinced it was not, it was only a matter of time. There was a ticking clock, Simon. But the other thing is, you see, again, to put this in context, that you kind of forget is how many times we had been told, as you just said, Russell T. Davies' name was being touted for quite a, quite a long time yes. before it actually came back. But also, we'd been through, um, the, if anybody remembers this, in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, the Dalton Rays um, green light uh, movie that was going to happen with Donald Sutherland as the Doctor. And this was absolutely 100% going to happen. They were going to start filming next week. And we were told <laughs> they were going to start filming next week for about an entire year. <laughs> and <laughs> literally, I'm not kidding. Because, of course, it was, I think it was ultimately, it was the... Um, it was the Paul McGann movie that finished off that particular bid. And so we'd had lots of these disappointments where we'd been promised, we'd heard rumours about it might be a co-production with America. All this had been flying around for years. And so, again, when the announcement was made about Russell T. Davis, there was a degree of uncertainty and trepidation. And, and it wasn't that you didn't believe it so much as you were, you were almost nervous to believe because we'd been let down so many times mm. before. 
but of course it did happen and it was I I I don't think I'm exaggerating to say it is the greatest TV comeback in British TV history. Absolutely. In the universe, in the entire universe, everybody, whichever TV show or movie you want to hold up and say that, that was a bigger comeback. No, I think Doctor Who has been the biggest comeback of all time on any screen of any size. 13 episodes of uh, brave, frantic sci-fi and fantasy on a Saturday evening that had the entire nation talking, wondering, was, wondering what was going to happen next, latching on to the characters, not just of the Doctor, but of, of Rose Tyler, played by Billy Piper, and Captain Jack Harkness, and Mickey, and Jackie, and everybody else. They became like extended family, and the entire nation was invested in what was going to happen. And, strangely, <laughs> for a show that had just come back, we were kind of curious and waiting to see how this Doctor was going to die. Because that was another strange element to it. Two, wasn't it, Simon, that within 48 hours, we knew that this doctor's screen life was going to be really quite limiting, limited. Can you remember reading that in the paper? I, you know, I can't actually remember. It was, it was between episodes one and two, wasn't it? That's it was right, now. yeah. It was on yeah. the Monday. So we got told how fantastically successful this show was, <laughs> but it's ending. Yeah, I can't remember. I don't remember that. What I remember more was the leaking of Rose the week before transmission. That's what I remember absolutely distinctly. And again, this was in, on BBC News that, boy, Rose, the entire episode, had been leaked. And I know people that had it. I didn't have it, didn't want it. I was offered it. I didn't want it. I, I wanted to watch it too, yeah. go out live as I was meant to see it. Mm-hmm. The fact remains, it was a really, in a, in a way, it was a really turbulent period um that whole that whole first series was very very turbulent that so much was going and i guess that just goes to show that doctor who really has got that enduring appeal people really do love it and 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 are interested in what's happening and it does fire the public's imagination otherwise it wouldn't keep on having this kind of whirlwind history around it it's got a it's got a colorful patchwork history doctor who has right the way through and it continues to this day Unlike unlike most other TV series, if you think about it, yeah. you know, how many other people would be okay? There would you'd get a concerned if if, if um, a, a major episode of I don't know EastEnders was was leaked on the internet, yeah. but but that's about it really. Most people wouldn't really care, would they, if a show no. was leaked? Doctor Who just commands that attention. Mm-hmm. And that interest in what is going on behind the scenes, and it's not just gossip, though, is it, Sarah? You know, we don't. There's nothing necessarily salacious about our interest in the the making of Doctor Who. It's a genuine investment and interest and concern, isn't it? And and kind of more like a football supporter following a a club. Yeah, you're there for the highs and the lows. And I think what was wonderful about when it did come back was having Doctor Who Confidential. Because it's really, apart from like the Lord of the Rings movies... I think it's the only time I've actually been interested in what happened behind the scenes and how, you know, these choices got to be made and how it all worked and everything. And and obviously, I had no idea. I, I knew Doctor Who was a show. And, I, I, you know, I knew who Tom Baker was. I knew what the TARDIS was and a Dalek. But that was pretty much it. So having watched it and enjoyed it, 
to then watch Doctor Who Confidential and you find out, oh my God, it's taken years. Yeah. To go, this is this is a big thing, you know. It's a institution. It's not just a TV show for forty five minutes, and you're just getting to see them behind the scenes and the personalities, and you fell in love with Russell. You know, before then, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you know who directed EastEnders or Coronation Street or anything <laughs> like that, but. You know, you know these names, you know Murray Gold. Yeah, and these little personalities, and oh, it was just lovely to see. And then they did the little video diaries as well. And yeah, it, it was really like, life was like a family. Yeah, I'm really interested by the fact how you came to it, Sarah, because yeah. because what was it? You Had you watched any Doctor Who prior to this at all, prior to Rose? Uh, I'd seen the TV movie. That, okay, remember, that's yeah. about it. That's so, what was it? so what was it that made you, because obviously it was obviously why Dan and I were going to watch it, yeah. made you want to watch Rose? Why Why did it appeal? Did you watch Rose as it was broadcast? Yes. And yeah, so what was um, it that drew you to it? It was it, it advertised as like this fantasy science fiction adventure show. Uh, and obviously I'd been raised on Buffet. Roswell and you know all them shows uh, coming you know Smallville was starting and th- that was my thing you know genre TV was my thing and I know Russell had you know he looked at Buffy as a lot of inspiration and I think that is why it worked doing that the, you know the companion driven thing with Billy Piper it really appealed to a lot of people um, and, I, and I was interested I thought I was more interested in Billy than Chris at the time, because obviously she had grown up with us being a pop star. I mean, there's not much between our ages. And it, I was really interested to see, you know, if she could act. Yeah, I just loved the story. It's just with everything else. It's as simple as it's just the story and the characters. And who wouldn't want to just run away in this box and go on adventures? And what that opened up. I just couldn't wait to see, you know, the next episode. Where are they going to go? And it's funny that you mentioned Billy Piper because, yeah. I mean, you say, Dan, about remembering casting being announced. I certainly remember Billy Piper being announced yeah. uh, as the companion. And and uh, this is, uh, tr- I think it's probably true to say that most Doctor Who fans, their hearts sank because they thought, oh, no, it's a pop star. You know, we're back to yeah. kind of Bonnie Langford sort of stunt cats casting. Yeah. And, of course, boy, were we all proved yeah. wrong because I think, for me personally, Billy Piper is the star of that entire first run more than yeah. Christopher Eccleston is. Um, for me personally, I think she's absolutely knockout. She's one of the best companions we've ever had. There was a lot of, uh, yeah, there was a lot of that. Mm. I was a voice in support of Billy Piper being cast in, in Doctor Who. I'd seen her act. Quite recently, I, I watched that Bella and the Boys drama that she was in about the girl from the children's home. I thought that was incredible, really powerful, and that she disappeared into that part. And I'd, you know, I'd heard her singles as well. You know, I used to listen to Radio One back then at work. You know, so I heard those songs. They'd driven me around the bend and all the rest of it. <laughs> so I was well aware of who she was. I think, but I enjoyed that. Yeah. There was a, a mid. There were there were these updates of of um, Chaucer tales as well canterbury tales that the bbc made yes, she was in one of those she was she was really good in that she played a sort of a, a lolita kind of character in that the kind of role that would usually go to a pop star who was going into acting looking back mm-hmm. but to see that contrasted with the bella and the boys drama thought okay this woman has got some range this could really go somewhere this feels like it's now and relevant 
and this could really, really work. Uh, I think that it did it work, did it ever. And the phrase, the trip of a lifetime, if ever I hear that now or read it anywhere in this advertising, promoting anything else, I still hear it in my head said in a Mancunian accent. <laughs> yeah, and, and, yeah. And oddly, the thing that I remember more than anything is the trailer that they did with Billy Piper, where mm. she's standing at the title saying, well, you know, I could be this, or I could be carrying on working in the shop, or I could, I can't remember exactly what the lines are, or I could go off with this bloke in a, in a TARDIS around the universe. What do you think, in, a, mm. in, a real, in, in, her, in her London accent, her Cockney mm. accent, and I've never forgotten that, what do you think? Mm. And that was brilliant. Well, and of course... And what he is stood, he's just stood in the background, not saying yeah. a word, is he looking solemn yeah. and mysterious mm. and unknowable? Yeah. yeah. It still makes... And, and it, it sets the hairs on your back of your neck. It makes up. you laugh. I mean, you can't see this, listeners, but we're all sat here just beaming. We are beaming. Thinking about this. Because yeah. it, it was exciting. I've got a choice. Stay at home with my mum, my boyfriend, my job, or chuck it all in for danger and monsters and life or death. What do you think? Doctor Who, coming soon to Saturdays on BBC One. And I think, and I think that is the main thing of why it worked, not just obviously Russell's writing and his vision, but... The chemistry between Christopher and Billy, it can't be emphasised enough. Sadly, yes, it was all over, or at least that incarnation of the show, just 13 weeks later. And it was spectacular how it all ended, but we didn't really know why it had, it had ended. And although we welcomed Eccleston's successor with open arms, and the show itself arguably went on to greater success, there is something about those 13 episodes and that time all the conversation around it, all the publicity around it, the entire Doctor Who machine, how, how the series, the franchise, jolted into life and, and, and back to relevance and how it was embraced by the British public. But there's still something of a bubble about those 13 weeks. As if, did that really happen? And we were left with that feeling, I think, until the Christmas, until it came back for the Christmas special and was back, back, and it was going to go and go and go and run and run and run. But... With all the years in between, hearing so little from Christopher Eccleston on his time in Doctor Who, and comparatively little from Russell T. Davies too, they've always been very respectful of that time and of, of one another, regardless mm -hmm. of what was said and what wasn't said during the process that led to Chris departing the role. It still remained very special. I think they preserved it for the audience. I think they mm -hmm. had a healthy attitude towards it as regards their own career, okay, let's just move on, let's keep learning, let's keep telling these stories, let's move on. Uh, but for the for the viewers and for the fans, I think we can sort of mythologise it a little bit, that even though it was a show that came back as an ongoing show, that that one year, that version of Doctor Who, it's still sort of flickering away, because it's a pure version of the character and of the show, that some of which carried on into that which we saw afterwards, but but not much. It feels special and a little bit unreal. Therefore, after all this time, after over 15 years, so does Christopher Eccleston's return to the role and return to the fold and to the fandom and to Doctor Who magazine. And you'd think that 
when it was announced that Christopher Eccleston was going to be playing the Doctor again, his Doctor again, for Big Finish Productions, you'd be forgiven for thinking, okay, this is going to be minimal, minimal engagement, minimal involvement in the production from Christopher Eccleston. He's a busy man, a very much in-demand actor now as he was then, and therefore min- minimal engagement with the fans that, that we'd get with the actor. This is a man who considers his words very, very carefully. He's a man of integrity. And uh, I always get the impression that he likes to uh, keep the curtain pulled across the, his own process. He considers the fact that he's able to act for a living and act for the audience as a privilege. Yeah. And, and he's very, very serious and respectful about that. So I was really surprised. I, I don't know how you guys felt, but I was surprised and delighted to see that he was going to give right away this really quite thorough two-part interview to Doctor Who magazine across two of the most recent issues. That's uh, issues number 563 and 564 of Panini magazine's Doctor Who officially authorised title. Quote after quote after quote. They, they split it into two. He's very firm that he wants to talk about now rather than then, isn't he, throughout the interview. It's a real eye-opener nonetheless, isn't it, Simon? It is, but I have to be honest, in virtually the first sentence I read in the first part of the interview was, I'm I'm only going to really be talking about Big Finish, and I have to be honest, my heart sank, because I'm just thinking, no, I really, really want (laughs) to know. Uh, not necessarily all the, muck the juicy about bits, no. whatever. I do want to hear the juicy bits. I'm, I'm, I'll be totally honest. I do want to hear the juicy bits. I just want to hear m- more honest thoughts from him about what was, what must have been a completely sort of crazy two years of his life making that show, 18 months, two years, whatever. And so I, I'm, I, I really would like to read his thoughts on that now in hindsight all these years afterwards where he can look at it more with the cold light today so to, so so to hear that he's, he's you know he's he's emphasizing it's clear he doesn't really want to talk about what has gone he only wants to talk about what's happening now and that, <laughs> that was something of a, of a kick in the gut for me the immediate tone that i got from it sarah was that we were sitting down with chris eccleston and that he was kind of standing up and laying an arm down and offering us a chair at a table with him. I mean, one of the very first things that he says, in fact, it's it's on the front of, of the magazine, on the cover, in big letters, he says, uh, as regards the audience, because in that time in between, he had said so little, up until quite recently at a couple of conventions, he had said, had said so little, and a lot of the fan, fan base felt a little bit uh, dismissed by that. Yeah. And so there was a certain distance there, there were some strong opinions out there about the actor from some people that we know, you know, really kind of almost resented him and felt that he didn't love us or value us as fans. But one of the very first things he says is, I've always believed that people who watch the show know who I am and what that role meant to me and what I gave to it. There's no mincing words there at all, is there? And in fact, there's everything that he says throughout this interview it's all very direct, isn't it? It's very plain English and no nonsense. And well, this is what I like about Chris is because, and yeah, maybe it is because of his background, he is very, not, not confrontational, but it's direct. He, he doesn't pussyfoot around things. He doesn't shy away. No. 
it, it doesn't always... I mean, obviously there's a game that's got to be played when you're an actor and you're promoting stuff, but I never get that sense of him doing... You know, you, you know some actors you can really tell, can't you? Um, so I think, you know, if he has taken the time to sit down and do this, you know, he's, he's going to do it properly. And, yeah, the fans deserve to know. And I think because he has been so tight-lipped, I think that was, like you were saying earlier, it was to preserve it for the fans, you know, and to keep going on about it and delving in, you know, would it spoil that, you know, that time? I mean, I found it difficult. You know, that time brought me so much joy as a viewer and as a fan. And then you find out from his autobiography, you know, he was dealing with mental issues and his anorexia and all sorts, as well as, you know, the constraints of the job and you know the turbulent full men and you know the arguments that went off behind the scenes and it, it, you know I don't you don't want it soured too much yeah it, it'd be nice to you know peek behind the door um, but I am quite happy with what he has decided to share with us and as a fan Sarah as somebody who's read the autobiography and and related to him and has affection for the actor as well as the character Stepping back into it, you think, well, would this bring back bad memories for him at a time mm-hmm. where, yeah. even even though he said some nice things about the role there, and he undoubtedly gave his all, the man was under a lot of pressure. You know, was he really sure that that coming back to this part in any context was was the right thing? You couldn't help but worry for him. Yeah, and again, it you know, it isn't necessarily just because he doesn't want to talk about it. It could be uh, that you know he has he has moved on. That you know, that's it, and he's walking away. But what I found from his autobiography is that he he's gone, he has gone back, and he has watched himself. He's watched himself with his own children, and enjoyed that experience. So maybe that you know, he's kind of like chosen to embrace it again because he's now seeing it in the eyes of his children. Yeah. It, it really does put a different perspective on it because now he can create content that he can share. Because obviously, you know, they're quite young. He's not going to be able to show him shallow grave or anything like that <laughs> anytime soon. I like how he described yeah. the, the character here. He says the Doctor is a full force gut reaction to life. It's a gift to play and a joyous thing to do. The thing is with, with Chris is that, yeah, he chooses his word, words so carefully. He is a man of few words in every sense of the word. As, as, as much as we're sort of laughing about getting two interviews with, with Christopher Eccleston, and in fact, actually within the space of a week, uh, uh, we'd actually have three interviews with Christopher Eccleston, because, of course, he, he, he's also got a, an interview published in the uh, 100 Objects book yeah. um, from Candy Jar at exactly the same time. So suddenly, he is kind of everywhere, but actually we are, we're joking with that, because that, that's it. That's as much as you'll get from Chris Preston for quite a while. Whereas other actors, you, you, you know, you're going to get an annual interview in Doctor Who magazine kind of thing because they'll keep on coming back. So Christopher Eccleston is definitely a man of few words, but they're well-chosen words. He thinks carefully before opening his mouth in the way that a lot of people don't or probably should. Um, and but But also within that, although they're carefully chosen words... I like the fact that he is also so honest and so direct. He he, he calls a spade a spade. Um, and and I, I see Chris as very much a, a dichotomy, really, because on the one hand, he's a very actorly actor in that he takes his acting very, 
very seriously. He is an actor with a capital A. There are lots of photos of him, aren't there, of him in other roles holding schools taken in darkly lit alleyways, frowning. Yeah, but 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 oddly then, on the, the opposite to that, the dichotomy to that is that he's probably the most down-to-earth, yeah. a spade-is-a-spade kind of, of person you could hope to meet, which is something of a dichotomy. You don't generally find actually actors quite that direct and, and down-to-earth. Yeah. And, I, and what my very favourite bit in, in, in the whole interview... Uh, was when they asked him, why is he come back to Big Finish? Why is he doing these? And he says, because of the money. And I <laughs> love that honesty. I've got I, mean, the... <laughs> I want to give him a round of applause. Exactly. You, Wasn't it refreshing yeah. to read? This is oh, Noel so... Gallagher of Doctor Who. Yeah. His, his, exact, <laughs> his exact words here. <laughs> yeah, because obviously this is the question that a lot of people, the more cynical amongst us, among fandom, may have, may have been asked, yeah, why now? Because we um, never thought he'd do it. And he says, yeah. I've been asked on a few occasions, but it wasn't the right time because of various things about where I was in my personal and professional life. And then it became the right time. And yet he does mention the fact that it was a pandemic. There wasn't a lot of work going on. Mm-hmm. He's got to put food on the table. He's a father. He's got two children now. Mm-hmm. And anybody who, who uh, is so inclined, although Chris Eccleston is a man of few words, he's a man of... Uh, Lots of pictures, and you can follow him on Instagram, where you see lots of pictures, very um, colourful pictures from his day-to-day life, some of which with his own family, and the things that he enjoys doing with his friends as well. Uh, Again, the impression of a really down-to-earth, just a normal guy who enjoys doing normal things. He's got some some firm beliefs, as most of us have. But yeah, wonderful social media presence. I'd recommend it to anybody. Just go over there and you get to get to see little bits of his taste in music and all sorts of things. Uh, joy. Hearing him talk as frankly as that, as deep as he can be about how serious he is about the roles that he takes. When you read things like that, you can never accuse him of disappearing up his own backside. No, not at all. And I honestly don't think I've ever heard any interview from any other actor who said I did it for the money. Um, (laughs) Apart from Michael Caine, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe Um, But you have total respect for him as a result. It doesn't doesn't diminish him somehow in that you suddenly think, oh, he's just money grabbing. No, he's just honest. Because let's be honest, that's what all of us work for. It's for for money. And so, it's as you say, Dan, it's so refreshing to hear that rather than... um, Pontificating about how, oh well, I wanted to explore my inner self, yeah, and yeah. I challenge, and I, and I, you know, I wanted to work with this person who I would. No, 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 he did it for the money, um, and I love that in him. And I also like the fact that he's equally frank and outspoken about uh, what he calls um, actors as demigods. Yeah, you know, this celebrity status that, yeah. that actors have, and again, this is something that he he apparently. It seems to reject quite quite vociferously and quite um, deliberately. He doesn't believe that actors should be demigods. He very much, I'm, I'm assuming, sees actors as just people who are doing a job the same as doctors and nurses and, and, and yeah. postmen and who are postwomen and firefighters, whoever it might be. We're all doing the same job. And I love the fact that he's able to bring that degree of frankness to to the table it's it's so refreshing and so honest and you can't help but like somebody who is able to be that honest and open 
And he's consistent too, as well. I remember when he was cast, you know, he heaped a lot of praise, even though it was, even though it was Chris sitting, for example, on the sofa on the Jonathan Ross show or on Top Gear or whatever else. He would always talk about the writer. He would always mention them. He'd always men- mention Russell or mention. He's very Russell. generous in that respect, yeah. isn't he? And that remains. He said, he said here in this new interview, I honor the writers. I protect them. I'm an average actor made to look good by writers. And that he was overjoyed by the, the strength of the writing at Big Finish. He, he was very generous about them as well. He said their process is impeccable. It's honest. It's irreverent, but it's professional. So again, clarity, uh, respect, dignity. Dignity. I think that's the best word to describe him. And that's how yeah. that, that the interview comes across with dignity. Something that did surprise me, Simon, I think that this would have delighted you, was that he heaped so much praise on Tom Baker. Christopher Eccleston's an actor who we spoke about this before, Sarah, how he boasts about the fact that he didn't really get Doctor Who. He didn't watch Doctor Who. It was sometimes on and he happened to be in the room. He didn't really think that the part related to him or vice versa. But he did say of Tom Baker, he said Tom Baker's performance was always in the moment and eternally fresh. And he describes him simply as the master. And quite, you know, how, how can you argue? <laughs> no. Obviously. Again, how generous of him to do that. He doesn't have to, he doesn't have to talk about Tom Baker in that, in, in that sense at all. Um, and I, I just like the fact that he's found something beneficial in, in Tom's performance. Um, and, and I think the interesting thing with with the Ninth Doctor, it actually shows the two extremes of Tom Baker. In that you've got um, you, you've got the kind of buffoonery and the studenty attitude of the early uh, Tom Baker series, uh, and then you've also got the the funereal gravitas of season eighteen Tom Baker. Yeah. Whereas you, you you kind of have to look at full seven years of Tom Baker to see that full extent of the, of the character's range. With with series one, the Christopher Eccleston series, you get all of it um, within... within. Now, maybe you could criticise it and say they, they kind of should have gone in one direction or another. Um, and I personally do think they should have gone in one direction rather than going in both directions. I, my personal feeling is okay. that where that's where they hedged their bets. I don't criticise them for hedging their bets. They were, as you said earlier, Dan, they were feeling their way through this. This was a, a really difficult thing for anybody to bring to the screen. So I understand why they they put a number of different styles in there to test the water to see what would work and what, and what didn't. In hindsight, for me, what works is Chris Eccleston when he's playing season 18 Tom Baker. When he's got that gravitas that funereal um serious um hooded eye look um mm. as opposed to the goofy uh, grinning buffoon fantastic <laughs> that's the bit that doesn't work for me um but i but i think that's that's something that they probably would have refined had chris stayed around for series two i think they would have refined that and they'd have worked out what's working i think he very clearly would have said what he feels is working and what isn't and they would have gone with that direction don't you think that's why series one feels so special because it's like a microcosm of that doctor and I, and I you know to see you've got like every facet of him and i think that's really exciting because now 
they can do this through Big Finish. They can pick what element they want to do. And it actually, hearing him talk about Tom Baker, it actually makes me really excited. You know, if, he, if he's taking lessons from the master, <laughs> you know, are we going to get, you know, more, more Tom Bakerisms? Uh, so, yeah, that, that, that really, uh, that really fires me up. Yeah, well, I would agree. And I think, again, this is, it, it, yes, although I would have, I would have preferred to choose one direction for series mm. one to go down. And that would have been the more serious direction. I also appreciate that you're right, Sarah, actually, that, that the, the divergence, the difference of facets mm. of the character that come out do help to make it a, a, a more interesting series and a more interesting portrayal of the Doctor in the way that David Tennant, much as I love David Tennant, what you see in A New Earth is what you pretty much end up with in, in, in his final story. You, you, you kind of got it all there pretty much in one, in, in one fell swoop, whereas with Eccleston, he is able to dart between different facets. Um, and you're right, it, it certainly gives the character room to breathe within Big Finch, that they can go in any number of different directions of story with the Ninth Doctor. He says he's not interested in, uh, in revisiting sort of the past adventures in series one he wants to explore the character without the darker strings and wants to bring in bring in some of the more comedic and loving sides to the character which perhaps he didn't get a chance to explore on tv before at this point the, the point where we're going to join these new stories which is which are going to take place before rose again re- creatively quite a bold thing to do but they're going for it here with something that does seem to be structured and even though he hasn't had a hand in the writing he seems he seems to have a relationship with the writers, with Nicholas Briggs in particular, which means that it's going to be tailored to his doctor, tailored to his wants as an actor and the way that he would respond to a material, I suppose, hearing his voice. I mean, the way that I do when I hear the phrase trip of a lifetime, I suppose mm-hmm. the, the writers, I would imagine Nicholas Briggs can probably hear that too and will sort of will chime in to that. I also liked what Christopher Eccleston said about scripts that he doesn't like. He says, if there's a script that I don't like, I just don't take the part. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, nothing big, nothing clever. <laughs> no, but of course, what's interesting for, for, for when he was in Doctor Who, he had no choice in that matter at all. No, he'd taken the role of the Doctor and he, got, and he did the, yeah. the, 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 the scripts that he got given. And that's where I would love to hear. And I know he'll never do it because he's far too professional um, to do this. But I would love to know which were were his favourite stories? Which were his least favourite? What did he think worked? What did he think? I think he has right? named. I think he has named his favourite stories, hasn't he, Sarah? Dalek was one, and uh, it was the Stephen Moffat one. Went it, it was the two parter. Yeah. Doctor Dancers and the Empty Child. He heaps but as praise. But about his least favourite. Well, I suppose we can kind of decide, but we can figure it out by the directors. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, there's a couple of directors that, he's, that he wasn't wasn't too keen on. When they cast him, how many scripts have they got at that point? I suppose mm-hmm. most of them, because they were filming, weren't they, within three or four months. I would imagine that at least half of them were readable. Half or more were probably in a readable state. We know mm-hmm. that the average script goes through about ten rewrites, I understand. But the, the bare bones of them would have been there, so he would have had some idea of that which he was getting into what he could sort of bring out and what he what I don't he know that's a really interesting thought I don't know I, I'd be interested to know I've never really thought about that how far in advance was he cast to the to the stories being written 
Um, and maybe that's why you get a, a certain variation within the stories as to sometimes you get a goofy doctor, sometimes you get a serious, somber doctor. Um, maybe, maybe they were sort of casting around because they weren't certain quite who they were going to have at that point, and they were keeping the, the, the scripts reasonably fluid as to which direction each each writer mm-hmm. wanted to go in rather than tying them down to anyone, uh, any, anyone's style. So maybe they did have most of the scripts. I certainly, I can't imagine... Christopher Eccleston signing on without having seen some scripts, but then I don't know because because I, I certainly remember at the time and since he has said that he trusted Russell T Davis implicitly because yes. of the work that they'd done previously. So to be honest, I wouldn't be at all surprised if actually he hadn't seen any scripts at all, um, and he just and he just agreed to do it on the strength of knowing it was uh, it was Russell, yeah. who at the that, time they were very very good mates. Yeah, having that experience working with him on, on the second comment, which had got universally praised. I, uh, I noticed the section, I would imagine that both of you did as well, when he talks about, this is a man, Christopher Eccleston is somebody who, you know, I don't think you would necessarily describe him as an activist, but he's a man who will talk on pretty much any subject from an informed position and tell you why he believes what he believes. And uh, you find this in his social media presence a little too. So there's a section in the interview where they ask him specifically on something that has come to the fore very much since he's been away from the from the TV show. But they asked him about politics in writing, about the Doctor Who writing that he's been involved with. He says it's avoiding soapboxing, which is what the great writers do anyway. If you want to make a point, make it gently and make it subtly. Don't think he's seen Series 12, anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but that's refreshing. Again, that's refreshing yeah. to read that too, isn't it? Because you, know, you don't have to abandon principles and themes and and topics to put the drama first to consider the viewer to, to tell a rounded and robust story do you say absolutely not and again what i love about chris is he is he's so passionate about the acting and the, the skills of writing and performing i don't think you can ever accuse him of just you know using it no. as a platform yes he has got them views but, you know, first and foremost, it, you know, he's an actor, he's come to do a job. And again, I, again, I just love, it's just refreshing this, there's no fluff. He'll, you know, he'll just come out and say what he thinks. And yeah, I, I was overjoyed to read that because you don't get a lot of that in the entertainment industry at the moment. <laughs> no, you don't, you don't get any of it at the moment in the entertainment. And I think he is kind of making a very, a very, uh, yet yeah, yes, again, a typically Christopher Eccleston blunt, direct comment on on current writing. Uh, 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 and certainly we've seen it in Doctor Who of late, and but not just Doctor Who, other, other shows yeah. as well. But most notably seems to be in Doctor Who, um, where we are being bludgeoned over the head. Um, and beaten into submission of, of believing a certain viewpoint rather than merely being presented uh, with with interesting concepts that, that encourage us to explore our own thoughts and our own perspectives in, in certain political issues mm. and using political in the, its loosest possible sense of the word. Um, and, and obviously Chris responds to that, and that's what he wants, that's what he wants to see. And, of course, that's all the work that he's done previously has always had that. I, I, you cannot imagine, let's be honest, you can't imagine Christopher Eccleston acting <laughs> in in uh, some of the uh, recent 
Chris Chibnall script where where they are very very deliberately taking a political stance and berating the viewer um, that they must take a certain political viewpoint. I just can't imagine Chris Eccleston ever wanting to act in something that that blatant. It, he's far more nuanced than that. There are, there's a truth to all of all of the characters that he brings to life, and this has been right the way from from when he was in Let Him Have It, the the crime thriller that I think that came out about 1989. When I saw him in that, through Cracker, through the Second Coming, and even smaller parts, the smaller parts that he has in things like Linda Green and and uh, supporting characters such as the one that he plays in The A Word, all these things that he's contributed towards, he seems to bring this truth. And conviction and commitment to telling a story for for somebody who didn't watch Doctor Who, and we we usually find that most people who work in the creative arts had watched Doctor Who or, or have some sort of affection for it. I think that inside Christopher Eccleston is still the little boy who liked to play act, and if he would pretend, maybe he was pretending to be a footballer instead, or a cowboy, or a train driver, or something else. That something else. I think that's. Like a lot of actors, he's never lost sight of of that willingness to to go out to play. <laughs> From Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who: The Ninth Doctor Adventures, Volume One, Ravagers. I'm back. I'm really back in the TARDIS. You did it, old girl. Endless possibilities and events. Future, past, and everything in between. I have done the thing, temporal thing, radiating from the TARDIS like nobody's business. Doctor, I honestly don't know how this could have happened. Come on, get in. Oh my god! It's all right, it's all right, don't panic. I'm not panicking. I wasn't talking to you. Centurion! Did you just fall out of the sky or something? So? Yeah. So you lied to her. I meant what I said. Doctor! If you can hear me, you better get here soon! Run for it, lads! Stay here, waving your swords and spears around. You'll be blown off the face of the earth. That macho enough for you? He's really done it now. Nova! Hang on to something! Sir! Stop this! I couldn't agree more, Doctor. Audrey, no! Put that gun! How can this be inside your police box? Perfectly reasonable question. Sergeant! We're being overrun! We've got to withdraw! Sounded a bit polite for a giant mechanical monster. Oh, just no idea, sir. Just the hell are these people? Just quiet, please, all of you. Sort of terrifying. Pretty much sums it up. What if they grab you and try to wipe your brain? They can try. Right. Shall we get on with this? That's not just amazing, it's... Fantastic! Big finish. We love stories. The other thing that I noticed, he does restate the fact that he didn't watch the show as a, as a child, but he's taken part in a video for Big Finish lately, which has gone out across their social media, a Q&A video where, he, where he's taken questions from listeners, from people who've come across the social yes, media content. And he did it as a video piece. He did sort of direct a camera where he opens up messages and responds to them live. Obviously, fans being fans, 
several of them asked him about, you know, which characters would you like to meet? Do you want to meet the master or River Song? And you can see by the look on his face, and he says, I've got no idea who these characters are, but I'm open to meeting anything and anybody. So yeah. clearly he, he intends on certainly finishing recording of, of this this range and maybe and maybe more afterwards but they ask him about about canon and about the legacy of doctor who a little bit in the interview too in doctor who magazine and uh, he says i'm glad it pleases fans but i am always most keen for a new alien to be created that's an interest even though he's not somebody who has read a lot of science fiction he claims he knows that this is sci-fi he's not trying to make it into something else Simon. no 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 he, he knows exactly what he's playing but He's one of those actors that just brings total conviction and seriousness to anything that he does. So he doesn't he doesn't need to know who River Song is. Um, no. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. If the script is good and he knows he can do something good with it, he will want to do it and he will bring his A game. He's just such an interesting person in that he's the least likely person you can think of that would be an actor as I say there's still this dichotomy that is to say he's a very actorly actor that he takes his acting so seriously but no disrespect to him or anybody else but I, I think he's far more likely to be to be on, on a bin lorry um, collecting bins and, and putting them in do you know what I mean yeah uh, he, and you know what was, if he if he was doing that he'd be happy as a pig in shit as well yeah and and, and there's there's nothing wrong with that. It, it, it's perfectly normal. That's how I see him. And so that's, I think, why everything he does is so grounded. He isn't, uh, he isn't remotely flighty. He isn't, he isn't, oh, lovely darling. There's none of that. And in many ways, I just think it's a, it's a shame, really, that following Doctor Who, uh, he, he did disappear into something of a black chasm for a while and I think that probably is because sadly because of, of the departure the way it was handled sadly it did push him into the into the wilderness for a while he's described it before as that he was blacklisted by the BBC he's expressly yeah, he stated that and he went to work in America for a, for a little while on the NBC fantasy show Heroes which uh, where he found was uh, crewed by some Doctor Who fans who tried to sneak the line fantastic into a script there as a bit of a nod to the Doctor Who role, which he says in the interview that he was oblivious to that at the time, but we noticed. <laughs> I watched Heroes, I noticed that. Uh, Sarah, when we spoke on the last show, we were speculating about what we'd like to hear with the Ninth Doctor next, about the continuity and the icons of Doctor Who that Chris doesn't know anything about himself. And if you remember, we rounded on, well, you mentioned the Cybermen, Yes. And I mentioned Brigadier Alastair Gordon Lethbridge-Stewart. And did, recently, did. they've announced details that the second box set in this series will indeed feature John Coleshaw as Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart and a Ninth Doctor meets the Cybermen episode. So are you excited by that? And do you think that yeah. uh, we had some sort of sixth sense there with that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 I don't know. It just all seems to fit together. I mean... I can just see the Ninth Doctor with the Brigadier. There's just something about it that fits. And I don't know if it's because, you know, Unit was only just briefly touched upon in that series. It, it does feel that kind of like, oh, what could have been? Yeah, I can totally see Chris uh, with the Cybermen. He needs the big foes, the big villains, the big, you know, intellects to grapple with because he ha he has got that kind of 
gravitas about him. You know, he can't, like Simon was saying, you know, about the Chibnall era, you know, he, he can't face off against the Pating. Oh, so or, just... or a talking frog. Good God. It's uh, <laughs> on that note, it's time for a break for a couple of minutes. Yeah, lots of planets have a north, but not all are blessed with a whole fandom podcast network. We'd hate for you to miss out on all the other great conversations going on over there on all those other wonderful shows. Here's a word about all of that, then you can meet Simon, Sarah and myself back here in a couple of minutes with some bang up to date, fantastic facts. Thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. We like to continue to feed your ears by inviting you to listen to the Fandom Podcast Network and all of the other awesome shows we have to offer. It starts with our flagship show, Culture Clash, our weekly pop culture news podcast. Blood of Kings, our Highlander podcast. Couch Potato Theater, our podcast celebrating our favorite movies. Time Warp, the Fandom Flashback podcast discussing a year in movies and our favorite pop culture topics. Enzo, the NFL podcast. Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast. Union Federation, our Star Trek and Orville podcast. Hair Metal, the 80s and early 90s rock metal podcast. Type 40, our Doctor Who podcast. Lethal Mullet, a 1980s and 90s action film podcast. What a Piece of Junk, a Star Wars podcast. And our newest show, Making Treks, a new Star Trek podcast with a deep dive into the final frontier with host Mark Newbold and Adam P. O'Brien. You can enjoy all of these great Fandom Podcast Network shows on our master feed at fpnet.podbean.com. Fandom Podcast Network is also on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also find us on Facebook under Fandom Podcast Network. You can also email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter under Fandom Podcast Network. Thank you for listening, and remember, respect others and enjoy your fandom. Yes, we've teased and tantalized you there, now let us clothe you too. Head over to tpublic.com, search for the Fandom Podcast Network, and you'll find a store full of the team colours for all those shows on t-shirts, hats, mugs, and a TARDIS full of other items. Treat yourself, treat your other selves, and it all goes to support the network continuing to fill your ears with 100% fabulous fandom goodness. Yeah, don't say we never told you, okay? All that stuff is out there on the Fandom Podcast Network's master feed for you to enjoy. Fill your ears and fill your boots. Yes, the uh, Doctor Who, the Ninth Doctor Adventures, will be released by Big Finish between May 2021 and February 2022, with volumes available as physical purchases and digital downloads via the Big Finish website. Simon, on the last show, Sarah and I, we uh, compared notes and our top three Christopher Eccleston Ninth Doctor moments from his era. So we were wondering, now that you've rewatched them after all that time, what's stuck in your mind? What are the essential, fantastic Christopher Eccleston moments from Series 1? 
one of my very very favorite moments is that moment in rose um where you just mentioned it dan with every every planet has a north i i love that line but then i love the speech then that immediately follows that 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 speech of of where he's holding rose's hand um and and we, i can't remember the exact lines but we're spinning on a on a planet at a million miles an hour falling through the universe it's so poetic um it's probably the best written 30 seconds in that whole 2005 series, I would say. It's just beautiful. It, it encapsulates everything that is Doctor Who. It was one of those moments where you kind of... Well, firstly, you suddenly realise, OK, this is the Doctor. It was one of those moments that, that Russell needed to put in that defined it to say, whatever you're thinking, I know it doesn't look like the Doctor, I know there's no long scarf no floppy hat but trust me this is the doctor and it was that moment and it was lovely that we'd had that sort of 10 or 15 minutes beforehand of sort of all goofiness and tomfoolery but then suddenly the buck stops and you realize oh no actually this really is the doctor so i love that moment sarah and i both picked that didn't we last time (laughs) but that's the moment too where when that scene ends that's the first time we see him walking off to the to the TARDIS. The TARDIS yeah. is in the distance. And we don't see him enter the blue box. He's just walking in that general direction. And Rose, she hasn't noticed the box because she won't know what it is, obviously, that it's a TARDIS. But to, to her, she won't even know what a police box is. It's just mm-hmm. there. So it's not even registered to her. It's a moment that just registers with the with the viewer and the subtlety of that always hits me every time I, I see it too. What, what is your second choice? Uh, my, my second one is is nearly his end blessing. I, I just love the moment that that he draws the energy out of Rose. This is in this is in the final episode uh, when Rose has absorbed the energy of the TARDIS and he steps up to the mark because uh, he knows what he's got to do and he knows that he's going to sacrifice himself by doing it. It's, it's such a noble uh, a noble Christopher Eccleston kind of thing to do. It reminds me a lot of the case of Androzani, where, in effect, the Doctor is sacrificing himself for his companion. And it, in many ways, of course, it foreshadows a lot of what happens then throughout kind of the entire run of the David Tennant era. But because it was kind of done there first and it was done with such conviction and such belief... Um, and I can just remember watching that for the first time on television. This was a big moment. We'd had a big 13-episode series that we actually probably never thought we would ever see in our entire life. And the fact that the series hadn't disappointed us generally, OK, there might be moments that didn't work, but generally it wasn't. A, it's far from a disappointing first series. So that was a relief. It was, we, you know, we, it was this relief for me that we got to the end of the 13th series. It hadn't disappointed. It was a good one. And he has this, mo- this beautiful moment. Sarah talked about sort of, you know, the chemistry between Chris Eccleston and Billy Piper, and it is there. It's all on screen. And it's encapsulated for me in that one little moment where he, says no now i you you stepped up to the to, to the plate rose now it's my turn i take over from here uh, and i save you because um, i suppose as well the last 12 to 13 weeks had been i don't think we realized at the time was about this sort of damaged man gradually that this young woman was was reaching was kind of saving pulling out of a darkness healing him she was healing him yeah in so many ways and I think because that last episode, which is one of my favourite episodes of the whole run, is so dramatic and has and, and feels so 
important. Again, I think in later years, this desire to top last year's season finale does it a disservice. But they hadn't got it. They didn't need to do that. But all they were doing is they was top. They were topping the first thirteen episodes, yeah. and they did it beautifully. And that's all it needed. And so it had all of the gravitas and the seriousness and the import and the universal feeling about it that it needed. It didn't need anything, but it didn't need to be any more overblown than it already was. It was just pitched just perfectly. And as I say, that moment was just, there were so many moments within that last episode moments of stillness moments of clarity um rather than it just being a, a you know a, a, a right, bang, 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 run, run run no 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 there's so many of those moments i love the moments in in the in the cafe between rose mickey and and her mom where they're just talking about about chips and you know it's all fine and you're going to go back to normal life and rose has that moment of clarity thinking i don't want to i don't want to go back to that so I like the fact that it has that those breathing points, those those um, those peaks and the troughs that you often don't get nowadays. It just kind of these days it tends to start at one point and you just go up and 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 up, and they're terrified to let their foot off the off the accelerator. Yeah. Um, and and they weren't afraid in that first series. They weren't afraid to do that. Yeah, and this, that's what I like. this wasn't Infinity War or Endgame or anything like that. It was, it was something much more, much more measured than that. More controlled, more controlled, control. They, yeah, control. And, and yet it's odd because on the one hand they didn't actually know what they were doing. They, as we said yeah. previously, were kind of thrashing around. They were yeah. desperately just trying to get a show on there that, they, that worked. What's your third and final moment? Well, my third one is really odd because, because as I've said all the way through, I, I like Chris Eccleston when he's being Mr. Serious and Mr. Somber and Mr. Funereal. Um, and yet my absolute favourite moment is, is one of his comedic moments. Uh, and I just absolutely love it. And it's in my least, least favourite episode from the series, which is Boomtown, which I absolutely hate and I would happily eradicate the entire... <laughs> 40, 44 and a half minutes of Boomtown, <laughs> apart from seconds where he is talking to the secretary outside Margaret Slitheen's office and he wants to go and see her and she's refusing to see him and the, and the secretary is making excuses as to why she can't see him and he ends, and there's just that, that briefest pause, he knows exactly how long to give a beat before he comes out with the line, She's climbing through the window, isn't she? And I just it made me laugh out loud at the time because again it's down to the writing <laughs> but it's down to the actor as well. So it's the perfect combination to me of good writing. What a, what a brilliant line. No other Doctor Who story before <laughs> or since had ever had the confidence yeah. to put that line in. And the way he delivers it with just so he, he, he delivers it with total seriousness, but it's just a laugh out loud moment. So that's, and that's comic timing too. Yeah, comic timing. timing, perfect. So I love that moment. I love but that episode. <laughs> so do I. I, just, I like the bit, the entire sequence of that when he's got the sonic screwdriver and he's just <laughs> just trying to get away and he's just stood there and she keeps coming back and. Oh. <laughs> It has its moments. It my least favourite moment, my least favourite, is, yeah. is when he dumps Adam back on Earth. That's really cruel. I, I, I find that very, very harsh, very cruel. He's completely cold, isn't it? He, he completely isolates him. 
and it's not necessary. I find it very, very unnecessary in the same way that I find it cold and cruel and hard of the 10th Doctor to hang Harriet Jones out to dry at the end of Christmas Invasion. That was a real misstep for me because that character was so beloved and so to, to, to literally destroy her. I thought it was cruel on Russell's part and that's the one thing that I would criticise about Russell. He seems to think that occasionally you need to bring a degree of cruelness to a character to bring gravitas and I don't agree with that you can bring gravitas without the character being cruel and poor Adam come on let's be honest he didn't do anything wrong he didn't do anything that you or I wouldn't have done and so for for the doctor to criticize so openly Adam for just basically being a teenage lad and messing up you're still a very young man the ninth Doctor was diminished in my eyes as a result of that because I thought, no, that's just that's just not very nice. It is when, when you compare it to the episode that followed after and what Rose did, she you know she changed the course of history. <laughs> that's okay because <laughs> they're best friends. So, whereas the Doctor was clearly the Doctor was clearly jealous of, of Adam. Oh, there is so so much up for debate in in these episodes, yeah. as there are with most episodes of Doctor Who certainly most seasons too. I'm looking forward to talking about more about the Ninth Doctor very soon. We're not done with him. Our reviews of these brand new stories will be coming up very, very soon in another episode of Type 40. But that is the old girl starting up and calling time on this trip in our TARDIS. I'll be back with another Type 40. Look out for that wherever you found this. It could have been on the dedicated home feed for Type 40. Type 40.podbean.com or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Google Play, or the Podbean app itself. We're also on YouTube, the world's largest streaming platform, on the Spacebooks YouTube channel. Plus, we're still on the fabulous Fandom Podcast Network's master feed, loaded up with so many other treats for your ears too, weekly. Maybe you'd like to have your say. Instagram and Twitter at Type40DoctorWho or email us Type40DoctorWho at gmail.com. And if you're feeling really brave and fancy some real-time extra-dimensional chit-chat, come and step into the Type40 Facebook group. Five years old this summer, still full of fans of all ages, sharing classic and new Doctor Who. No stupid apes, we guarantee, <laughs> sort of. Simon, where can people find you dotted around social media? They can come and tell me exactly what they think of my opinions of Christopher Eccleston by going onto the, uh, the Hoonatics Facebook page. Come and say hello. Sarah, what's cooking next? Have you another script in hand already for your next appearance on the Script Doctors? Oh, I do indeed. And we're doing Time Lash. Come and see me do Perry. And I, and I know he gets a lot of hate, but I like it because I like Paul Darrow. <laughs> You're quite entitled um, to. Yeah, <laughs> so, you know what? A hundred minutes watching Paul Darrow is never wasted in any role. Exactly. Yes, I, I even even that uh, curious character and that even more curious wig. I'm kind of fond of Time Lash too, but don't tell anybody, okay? And you can hear me on Twitter and Instagram as the Spacebook, where I'm rambling and posting away about anything that catches my eye in popular culture inside and outside of the TARDIS. Thanks again to the both of you, and thanks to you for listening. We always have the time. If you have the space here at Type 40, safe trip, happy landings, and all that. Bye-bye.
Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast, is a space book production for the Fandom Podcast Network with music by Problem Being.